Okay, so as we've seen in previous chapters of 1 Peter, the world in which these Christians find themselves uh, is hostile, it's pagan, and it's characterized by what I would call a strong antichrist spirit. Meaning it is, it is not just not like Jesus, it is against the ways of Jesus, okay? Um, the world they live in is not kind to them either because they follow Christ. And Peter is working his way towards talking directly about persecution, which really is the next section um, of the book. Uh, as scholar Karen Job says in her commentary on 1 Peter, by the way, that's a highly recommended commentary, um, the Christian community is to be an alternate society where believers should not have to face the same kinds of insult and hostility that come from those outside the church. However, in order for the Christian community to really be a place of support and refuge, certain qualities must characterize its members. And that is what Peter is going to address in verse 8 and 9, is what those qualities are that have to characterize the church for it to be a refuge where people can come and not be persecuted. Sometimes the church has been characterized as a place that persecutes its own people. And Peter's going to address that directly this morning. Okay, so let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So let's just look at each one of those words and understand what he means. So unity of mind is a really cool expression. It's an idiomatic expression, like a saying, okay, that Greek society used to refer to having, quote, a common heritage of faith and ethical tradition, okay? So it doesn't mean just all having the same opinion. It has more to do with the foundations of where your opinions come from, right? Is that I have this, uh, if you're a in Greek society at the time, you would say, I have this common shared history and ethical system with my neighbors because I'm Greek. And so what Peter is doing, he's stealing that expression and he's using it to apply it to the church. He's using it to reinforce the faith and ethical tradition of the church, which is really just the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles, which is really just the teaching of Jesus. Okay, It's the gospel. And so like-mindedness here is the common ground between all believers in Christ. We are one church, one body, with one Lord who is Jesus. And we have a shared history in the history of the church. We have a shared faith in Christ. We have a shared belief system in the Scriptures. And we have a shared experience in the Spirit. And we have a shared dependence on one another for our growth in Christian maturity. And Peter is saying, this is the foundation of your unity. This is the bedrock on which your relationships stand, and it is why you can be a safe refuge from the insanity in the world. You can come into the church, and now you have this immediate shared faith, this shared system of values, this shared history together. So this is what Peter's thinking of when he calls them and us to have unity of mind. Your translation might also say like-mindedness. There's several ways to translate that. He doesn't apparently have in mind this kind of robotic sameness that the world calls unity. It doesn't mean we all agree with each other, all have the same opinions, the same thoughts. 
It means we have a shared value system and a shared gospel together. And so then we have these other phrases Peter uses, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, which kind of group those together. These are Greek words that normally are reserved for family, which is really cool. Normally, a Greek at the time would use those words to describe their family. And Peter, again, takes those words and he says, no, 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 this is your family. The church is your family. He applies those words in what they would have considered to be kind of a weird, awkward kind of personal way that wouldn't have been normal in that culture. And Peter says, no, no, your real family is the church. He's referring, using those words to refer to church community, strongly implying that the church community is a family. Some translations translate sympathy into the English word understanding. I think the ESV does that. I could be wrong, but one of them does. But it's less about knowledge. So when it says understanding, it's not talking about just learn information. It's more about having compassion for someone. He used the same idea when he talked about husbands living with their wives in an understanding way. It's the same idea. This requires careful, attentive listening. I don't know if if you've noticed this, but I have noticed that the simple act of careful, attentive, sympathetic listening is an art that we are losing quickly in our day right now. It requires a heart that is open and willing to enter into another person's pain and actually understand them as a person and what makes them tick and why they think the way they think and why they do what they do. So our relationships within the church should be characterized by this strong, tender, loving kinship. He calls that brotherly love. That's kinship. Kinship is like the way you love your family. The way a brother loves his brother. The way a sister loves his sister. This is a different kind of relationship that they, these people have ever even considered outside of their family. And Peter is saying, this is your family, this church. In Greco-Roman society, this kind of language was never used to refer to any relationships outside of the family. Yet Peter does it here. Then he says, "Be have a humble mind, or you could say a humble attitude. Simply put, and like humility is a huge topic. So I'm going to be very simply put. Humility is simply considering others to be more valuable than yourself. This is another extremely countercultural idea in Peter's day, and I think it is becoming so now. But he's, humility was disdained by Greco-Roman society. They didn't see it as a virtue. It was actually a negative thing. It was not a virtue. J.H. Eliot, a historical biblical scholar, says that only those of degraded social status were humble. And humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame and inability to defend one's honor. See, this culture was an honor-shame culture. And the idea of being humble was seen as a character flaw, not as a positive thing. So Peter considered humility, despite that, to be essential to the unity and the stability of the Christian community. So let's read on, verses 9 through 12. He says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, 
but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and he quotes, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in this honor-shame culture like Greco-Roman society, you would be expected to defend slander with a verbal retaliation. That was a virtuous thing to do. Somebody attacks you or slanders you or reviles you or comes against you or talks about you and harms your reputation, you would be expected to fire back. And Peter doesn't say do that. He says he prohibits that. Uh, and this would have been shocking, right? This would have been like, what? what you, why would you tell us not to defend ourselves? This person attacked us and I had to defend my honor. And he's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Now, you know Peter got this from Jesus, just like everything else. If you remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? It's a famous quote. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. That's Matthew 5, 44. So this takes the humility that he has called Christians to have for one another, and he extends it out to the persecuting world around them. Think about this. For a minute, how much humility does it take? It takes humility <clears throat> for someone to attack you and humiliate you in public and for you to close your mouth and walk away. I mean, how many of us were told by our parents, look, just walk away. Don't engage, just walk away. And Peter says, do that, but then he takes it a step further, like Jesus did. And he says, not only should you close your mouth, but instead of just closing your mouth and walking away, instead open your mouth and bless them in return. That seems impossible. That's not just humility. That is Christ-likeness. So not only are they not to revile in return, they are to bless in return for insult. So reviling, that's not a word anybody uses anymore that, I, that I've heard anyway. Reviling is like an angry attack, a verbal angry attack, an insult. So it's like somebody, you know, going full redneck at Walmart parking lot, like yelling and like being crazy and attacking verbally. And then what always happens when somebody does that, the other person escalates and they fire back, right? And what he's saying is fire back, but fire back a blessing, not a curse. This is honestly, I think if we really think about who we are on the inside and what it feels like to be attacked like this, this takes a level of sanctification that's hard to even imagine. But this is what we're called to, Peter says. So as I've been thinking about this idea, it's a simple idea, but I don't think there's ever been a time in my life where it's been more important in the church. As I think about the culture that we live in and the way that the church is getting divided, just like the world is divided, it's very concerning. We have become deeply divided along political lines in ways that I didn't predict. In my lifetime, I've seen the body of Christ in America gradually allow her identity to shift 
from Jesus to political party. We've done this in lockstep with our culture that has also begun to place their identity in these rigid, simplistic categories of left and right. And each side has clearly defined very simplistic, very rigid lists of positions that you must adhere to in order to be a faithful member of that category. And the church, unfortunately, along with America, has put all of her eggs seemingly in the political basket, not understanding that no political party actually represents Jesus. The church represents Jesus. Not the Republican Party, not the Democrat Party, not even the Libertarian Party. The church represents Jesus. And you know why the church represents Jesus? The church represents Jesus because Jesus said so. Not because we're perfect. I'm finding in my own life, in my own experience, that most Christians are more passionate and zealous about politics than they are about the kingdom of God. That really is not good. All of these decades of the religious right trying to take over Capitol Hill in order to make the United States into our new promised land has created a monster that is now eating its own. And so if you go back to what Peter started off talking about this common ground that we have, we got fooled, the church, when I say we, I don't just mean Living Hope Church, I mean the American church. We got fooled into believing that we have in common as a, what we have in common as, America, as Americans or as members of a party is more important than what we have common in Christ. And so the effect of that is that the world's division becomes our division. The American church is now subject to the rancor and divisions of the world instead of being unified in Christ. And where the world is divided, we become divided. What I see, one of the things I see happening right now with all this crazy, insane stuff that's happening in the world with COVID and racism and political division and all of it is I think what God is doing or well, one of the things at least that God is doing, I don't know everything that God's doing, is that we've put our hope in idols. The idols of economics and political strength, scientific advancement, freedom and self-reliance. And now God is toppling over our idols onto the ground one at a time. And if your allegiance was to one of those idols, when you see it topple, you panic and you start spinning around in a chaotic panic, wondering, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? But I believe what's happening, there's hope in this because the true church is emerging. I think the church is waking up. The true church is emerging, a church characterized by, quoting, unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A church that doesn't revile when it's reviled. A church that doesn't persecute when it's persecuted. A church that doesn't slander when it's slandered, but instead it invokes the favor of God on its enemies. Do you know, that's what blessing is. When Peter says bless, he's blessing those who curse you or blessing anyone is the way God has given us to invoke his favor, his blessing on that person. And he honors it. 
So he's saying, invoke my favor on your enemies. I don't know that there's a more radical thing the church can do right now than that. So I want to encourage you to listen to Peter, okay? Listen to Peter and how you interact with each other. This has become much harder since face-to-face interactions are, are, are almost completely gone. Especially ones where you're talking about hard things. And our interactions with each other have been pushed online, which I think we're going to feel the effects of for a very long time. Because it allows you to create a distance where it becomes harder to have understanding. It becomes harder to be sympathetic. It becomes harder to remember that this person is family and not just an icon on a screen. And so it becomes harder to interact with each other the way Peter says to interact with each other because we're not present with each other. So we need to realize and own up to the fact that this is harder. Doing this right now is difficult. One of the things you realize is that all social media platforms are set up in a way that rewards divisiveness and de-incentivizes unity. Simplistic memes about complex issues get more likes and shares than ones that have nuance and more words to them. Less pictures, more words. Maybe that should be our mantra. Less pictures, more words. Statements that demonize and dehumanize those that disagree get more likes and shares. You get rewarded for saying horrible things. You get rewarded for being simplistic. You get rewarded for demonizing the opposition. Posts that attempt to be generous to the opposition and provide context and nuance to a hot-button issue tend to draw negativity here's like from all sides. Nobody likes nuance. So you find yourself attacked from everybody when you try to be nuanced and address the complexities of things and be generous to those that oppose you when you try to bless those who persecute you. Nobody likes it. This is the way things are set up. And you need to be mature enough to recognize that dynamic and fight it in your own life. I talk to other pastors on a regular basis, and all of them report back to me as we were talking that they are having continual problems with people feeling alienated in their church during this season. And the reason those people feel alienated is that they look around and they see their friends who they know love them and care about them in real life, but they see the, sort, sort of the, the, the sum effect of the way they talk online, the way they demonize this person's opinion. They realize, I have a different opinion from them about politics or some issue like that, but they seem to hate people that have my opinion. So what does that mean for our relationship? And this is happening everywhere. And I'll be honest with you, it makes me furious because this is not the way the church is supposed to be. And it's because we are forgetting the common ground that we have as believers.
So think about this. I want to encourage you to remember that online you are always in a conversation with your friends. Whether they respond, like, share, comment, or whatever. Everything you say has an impact. Every single thing you say has an impact. Everything you post is a two-way interaction, even if no one seems to notice what you say. It has a cumulative effect. Are you, here's the question, are you alienating to your real friends, your real-life friends that disagree with you? Or are you generous to them? Is the sum of all the content you put out there into the world characterized by what Peter Again, I'm quoting Peter, tenderheartedness, humility, understanding, sympathy, and a shared faith with your Christian community. And listen, we're not even into election season yet, <laughs> but that's coming. The political social media machine is about to spin up, and 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12 needs to become the guard on how you interact online or if you interact online at all. If you read Proverbs, it seems to be that the preferred state of your mouth, according to Proverbs, is closed. <laughs> it's usually the right thing not to say something, but to at least think before you speak. You don't need to post every opinion you have. <laughs> Just like in real life, in a real conversation, you have this filter, right? Right? where you understand, because you're looking at a human being, that you don't have to say everything that you think because you love the other person and you're trying to have a healthy, loving interaction with them. You actually want to hear what they think and what they feel and what they believe more than, you, what you, more than the way you want to say what you think and what you feel and what you believe. It's better... To put it a different way, it's better to use your voice to bless than to just opinionate. And this includes, by the way, sharing other people's opinions. Don't hide behind that. So find a way to speak life into that darkness. Speak life into the darkness, into the confusion. Not more confusion. And if you can't do that, then say nothing. So I have a few questions I think I want to encourage us to ask. These apply in person, but I think it's more natural to think this way in person than it is online. But I think this is important. Maybe before you post anything or say anything at all in life, you ask this question for, these questions first. And we could think of more, but you'll get the idea. One, does this alienate or unify? Is what you are considering saying, is it going to alienate people or is it going to unify them? If it alienates... Is this opinion worth losing a Christian friend over? Maybe it is. It's not that we should never alienate people because sometimes we need to say the truth in love and sometimes people get alienated by that. But the question is, is what you're going to say worth that cost? Because that is a tremendous cost to lose a friend. It's an almost unimaginable cost. Is it worth it? Another question, would a truly humble person say this? <laughs> would they say it in this way? 
Does this oversimplify due to a lack of sympathetic understanding, to use Peter's word? Am I being generous to those that disagree with me? And maybe the biggest one, is this cynical or is it hopeful? There is a tremendous amount of cynicism out there in the world right now. It's what leads people to not believe anything they read anymore. That's cynicism. Christians are not supposed to be cynical people. We are not supposed to be characterized by deep cynicism about everything they see and everything they read and everything anyone says to them. That kind of cynicism is from hell. It is not from God. God is a God of hope. He's a God of faith. And when you imagine your future, you imagine God in it. And that is your hope that God is in control and he is leading us into a good place and he is expanding his kingdom no matter what we see now. That's hope. So here's the thing about my list of questions. I was thinking about this this morning on the way in. All of you that will do without, all of those things, all those questions will naturally come out of your heart and guard what you say and what you type. If you are, you have successfully unplugged from the value system of the world and plugged into the value system of Christ. If you recognize that what we have in common as Christians in the gospel, in Christ, is what defines us as a community, not our political affiliation or any other opinion we might have about the world. If you get that, then you will do these things. It's when you don't get it and you get tricked, maybe in just a moment, in just, just, just one minute of the day, you get tricked into thinking that maybe if we just fix our politics, the world will be saved and America will become our promised land. And you say something alienating. That's how it works.